Welcome to the Azure Security Podcast, where we discuss topics relating to security, privacy, reliability, and compliance on the Microsoft Cloud Platform. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 39. Uh, this week, we have a full house. We have myself, Michael, Sarah, Mark, and Gladys. Uh, our guest this week is Mark McIntyre, who's here to talk to us about the Microsoft Digital Defense Report. But before we get to Mark, uh, let's take a look at the news. Uh, Sarah, why don't you kick things off? Sure. So I'm going to talk about the usual things that I talk about, which is Security Center and a bit of Sentinel, of course, my baby. Um, so the first thing um, I'll talk about, let's go through some Sentinel stuff. Uh, we released just this week when we were recording this uh, playbook templates, which means uh, now you don't have to go into the GitHub repo. You can go straight into uh, the UI and you can find playbooks. And there's a template there that's been pre-built, tested, and you can just deploy it straight from the UI, which is really cool. And we'll be adding more of those. Also, um, we've released our DHCP normalization schema for the Azure Sentinel information model or ASIM. So go and have a look at that if you're wanting to look at uh, how we are continuing continuing on our normalization journey. Uh, and then in Azure Security Center, we've got uh, we've got uh, the Microsoft Threat and Vulnerability Management added as a vulnerability assessment solution. So that's uh, uh, extending our integration between Defender for Service and Defender for Endpoint. Um, and you can now auto-enable vulnerability assessment solutions as well. So um, if you're um, using Qualys or you're using the Microsoft version, you can now have that auto enabled. You don't have to go in and turn it on manually, which of course is important if you want everything to be monitored. Um, I'm going to leave it there. Otherwise, I'll talk about Sentinel forever. Hey, before you run away, what's normalization? So normalization is the process of um, basically standardizing different data sources in a way that a seam understands it. So um, say you get a, a log source in and it's got a number of IP addresses. Um, and you know maybe it's called IP address in the uh, in the the data column it comes in in another data source might bring in IP addresses as well but it might give it a slightly different name it might just be IP um, it's still the same piece of data um, but without normalization um, your seam won't necessarily understand that that's the same piece of data. And the reason you want to normalize everything is so that we can write collateral for the seam that's um, source agnostic. So uh, it means that if you've normalized all your data, Sentinel will know, you know, this when it comes from this source, this is an IP or it's, it's a host or it's a message. And that means that we can, it simplifies our writing rules and other collateral for a seam. It's, 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 an, it's an important thing and it just makes everybody's lives a lot easier. So we love a bit of normalization. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I kind of thought I knew what it was, but unless it really didn't. So <laughs> thanks for that. So on the... <laughs> So on the news front, a couple of things sort of caught my interest uh, the last couple of weeks. The first one is, I know it's not directly as you related, but Windows 11, um, as some of you are probably well aware, there's a TPM, um, Trusted Platform Module 2.0 requirement. That's caused a lot of people to sort of ask, you know, why is it required? You know, what, what's, uh, what's going on there? Um, we've actually released a video, which is actually a really cool video, actually, of the need for the TPM 2.0 in light of the current really sophisticated attacks. In fact, we even give demos. Uh, there's a demo of a Windows 10 machine with all the defenses turned off, uh, where there's all sorts of really low-level attacks being performed against bootloaders and so on. Then the same attack is done against Windows 11, defaulted Windows 11, 
and the attack just fails. The, the video is well worth watching. It's about 12 minutes long. Uh, I can almost guarantee you will learn something from it. And if nothing else, the, you know, the demos are entertaining. I do want to spell something else else as well that was called out in the demo, in the, in the video, sorry. And that is these defenses have been around for quite some time. I mean, they've been available in Windows 10. They just weren't in, enabled by default. Um, but whereas now we're requiring them to be enabled by default for Windows 11. The other uh, item that took my note uh, the last couple of weeks is the OWASP uh, Open Web Application Security Project. They just had their 20th, uh, their 20th birthday. And it's funny, I was talking to um, the guy that actually started OWASP uh, a few weeks ago. I'm like, I'm not sure that's a good thing or a bad thing, you know, being 20 years old when your job is, you know, application security. Uh, but that being said, you know, the, the impact that OWASP has made uh, both in at Microsoft, both in, in, in Azure and with our customers and with, with their regulatory requirements really can't be underplayed. Um, they've, they've made a really big impact on application security. And for those of you who are not aware, they've also released their 2021 uh, OWASP Top 10. And without trying to sound too cynical, this is by far, the, in my opinion, their best OWASP Top 10. I, I agree with just about everything that's in there. Not that, you know, my opinion is anything special, but, you know, prior Top 10s, I've had sort of concerns with it. Sort of various items being at level, different levels of abstraction, uh, different vulnerability classes where they've actually gone to be quite consistent in the way they represent uh, vulnerability classes. They've also, for the very first time, um, called out threat modeling as a requirement, which is fantastic to see because, as you're probably well aware, you know Microsoft threat modeling is something that we're we're really big on, and it's great to see threat modeling being called out as a, a requirement around designing secure systems. Yeah. So. Um... The two things that I uh, picked up in the recent weeks was I updated Mark's list. So the, uh, the set of links that I keep um, that I constantly refer to, you know, colleagues, customers, partners, you name it, um, and added uh, a few items there around uh, the Ninja training uh, for all the various different products, uh, Defender for IoT, Sentinel, Defender for Endpoints, you name it. There's a really nice set of in-depth training for each of those, so I added that there. We also announced on the last podcast, we have the uh, cyber security reference architecture videos uh, are out, as are the CAF Secure. So we have the sort of program and components and disciplines of security kind of reference model of what good looks like, you know, what success looks like, and then a architectural reference as well for that more technical view. And then uh, the other piece, of course, is the uh, MDDR, the Microsoft Digital Defense Report, which we're going to talk about in a lot more depth um, with uh, Mark McIntyre. Hello, everyone. This is Gladys, and I wanted to let you know about a blog that talked about a 2.4 terabyte DDoS attack that Microsoft observed tra- targeting an Azure customer in Europe. This attack was 140% increased than any um, previous network volumetric event experienced on Azure. The traffic originated for, from about 70,000 sources from many different countries. The blog goes on into explaining how UDP was used with very short-lived bursts and how Azure DDoS protection could scale to absorb the volume and allow the customer to continue business as usual. The one mitigation that I was pleasantly surprised to learn about was that Azure dynamically allocated mitigation resources to the optimal location which were closest to the attack sources. 
So the traffic that originated in Asia Pacific and U.S. basically never uh, reached the customer region, but was instead mitigated at the source countries. Another thing discussed in this blog is how to enable the DDoS protection. Every property in Azure is protected by Azure Infrastructure DDoS basic protection and no, and no additional cost. DDoS protection basic helps protect all Azure services, including past services like Azure DNS. But DDoS protection standard adds availability guarantee cost protection, mitigation reports, and many others. So um, I recommend looking, uh, searching for the Azure customer despite uh, continue business as usual despite of a 2.4 terabyte DDoS attack blog uh, to read more about it. Also, if you have listened uh, to our previous podcast, you have heard me talking about how Microsoft focus on enabling um, the interconnection and cross-service collaboration of first and third-party services. Basically, enabling this data integration provides customers with more comprehensive analysis due to the many sources of data correlated, and it helps speed up resolution since automation can be used, uh, used to deal with the issues across uh, those services. Well, Microsoft has been named a leader in the 2021 Gartner Magic Quadrant for data integration tools. It, sh it basically shows our continued commitment uh, delivering a comprehensive and cost-effective data integration solution. It also, uh, the blog also uh, talks about the future of analytics since we have the capability of correlating so much data and the use of AI and ML to accelerate insight. Um, in addition, it goes into explaining how Azure Synapse Analytics make it possible to ingest, explore, prepare, transform, manage, and serve data for business intelligence and machine learning in a centralized and secure environment. Uh, this is one service that I'm spending a lot of time uh, learning about because uh, I see how the automation and uh, the insight uh, that this service enables. So I recommend this ad adding this uh, service to your future learning roadmap. All right, so thanks for the news, everyone. As Mark alluded to, uh, our conversation this week is going to be about the Microsoft Digital Defense Report. And to talk to us this week about that is Mark McIntyre. Hey, Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Why don't you spend a moment and just sort of explain your background to our listeners? Sure thing. This is almost like uh, getting the band back together with uh, Simos and, and Michael here. Actually, you know what? It kind of is. Um, <laughs> how long have we worked together? Well, I'm not going to sing, so you won't get that out of me. Long enough. Yeah, I've been here about over 14 years. Uh, who would have thunk? I joined the company in 07. Prior to that, I had been in the U.S. government, and my intention was to do one year in the private sector, scratch that itch, learn some things, and go back to government service. And for a variety of reasons, uh, free Starbucks, whatever the reasons, uh, here I am 14 years later. That's been great. Last five years, I've been one of our executive security advisors in the old cybersecurity solutions group, which has now, uh, you know, been reorged um, into the modern work and security organization. 
And so I work with primarily with the United States government CISO community and with uh, key U.S. state and local government CISO customers as well on digital transformation and risk management. Uh, and I should give you know props to Simos uh, for his reference, no pun intended, his reference to the reference architecture because. Um, I show that frequently. It's really, really popular. It's just a great set of material for for us to show our part, uh, our partners and customers. Don't keep saying that too much. We'll never get them <laughs> back on the podcast right. again. They'll, they'll start charging. <laughs> is that charging for it? Yeah. I mean, the first question is pretty obvious, right? So, what is the Microsoft Digital Defense Report, and why should anybody care? Well, I, I'm a huge fan of this. Uh, you know, I when we were planning this this uh, podcast, I had a few other topics in mind, but then when the date landed, I said, "This is uh, it's too good to pass up. Timing is too good." So, just last week, uh, Microsoft uh, released our latest annual MDDR Digital Defense Report. Some of you uh, might remember this as the old Security Intelligence Report that was published back in the day by the old uh, Microsoft Malware Protection Center. That was twice a year, cadence back then. But this is a uh, it's a look back on the previous year. You know what is what does Microsoft see going on around the global threat landscape? What you know what types of uh, of incidents, you know, emergencies have our people, have our security teams been dealing with the most? It's a great way, you know, looking back to put a lot of our, you know, Microsoft's, let's say, global security data estate into an executive level summary like this. And of course, other companies have, uh, you know, really good products too as well. But just a really good, you know, look back, a good level set. And of course, uh, no report like this would be complete or would truly be a service if it didn't actually, you know, also leave readers with things to do, you know, what's in it for me, uh, what does this mean to me, you know, what do I have to do so that, you know, the next year before Microsoft comes out with the next one, I don't end up in the news. Yeah, I mean, that, that's one thing I just want to reinforce that I really love about this report is how how much it focuses on the actionable insights. And it's not just, here's a bunch of data, here's a bunch of analysis, it's actually, okay, and what should you do about it? Um, that's that's one of the things that, that I love about it. Yeah, so actually I had a look at the, the reports a few days ago, and you know it's a big report. I'll be honest with you, I kind of glanced through it, didn't really read the whole thing, at least not, not yet anyway, um, I probably will. So could you just sort of share with our listeners what the key findings are, you know, sort of the, uh, the, the quick sort of list of uh, interesting items? Sure. So a couple of big takeaways for me, you know, first of all, the growing, let's say, sophistication and maturity of the, let's say, attacker landscape. You know, this is truly a, uh, you know, sophisticated, service-driven, bifurcated um, um, environment where attackers, you know, with a credit card or with motive, without perhaps even much technical acumen, can reach into the underground economy and essentially procure you know, attack as a service, right? And so, you know, it's, it's for me, uh, it's a really important way to drive home the economics, you know, that if you're a um, state local organization or educational institution or small, medium business, you know, whatever business you're in, if you don't think that your data is of interest to an attacker, the economics of the, you know, for the attacker just too attractive. And so, you know, from a pragmatic uh, risk management perspective and from an assume compromise, you know, perspective, just understand that that's what we're up against. That was one, uh, you know, one key finding. The other one, of course, you know, was that we're seeing cyber attacks going into pretty much, you know, 
all economic or let's say all sectors, right? And so, you know, obviously government and critical infrastructure and uh, healthcare, financial services, retail. So I'd, for a variety of reasons, the attackers are uh, equal opportunity. So again, you know, no one should assume that your little corner of the earth and that your, you know, data are not uh, attractive for whatever reason, you know, to an attacker. Uh, that reason typically is profit, but not always. That was a key finding. Uh, another one that I thought was really interesting, and there's no, there's no rocket science here, but, uh, and it should come as no surprise, you know, we have a, a, some content in the, you know, in the, in the blog posts and then the accompanying uh, PDF that once again, you know, shows a list of compromised, you know, harvested passwords, right? And it's just, it's the usual. And then in this case, we, we, we looked at some operational technology devices, but you know, uh, we saw the same thing, admin, right, user, <laughs> default, administrator, you know, uh, admin one, user one. So a little bit of creativity there. And so, you know, again, it's, and this is just Microsoft's report. You know, I have to imagine that others in the industry are going to, as they come out with their annual reports, uh, which I assume we'll get to as the end of the year approaches, we should expect to see more and more of this, you know, and this, this isn't naming shame. This is not naming and shaming. This is just, you know, reality. And this is, uh, we're up, we're all humans. We like using simple or, you know, simple things and, and passwords can be quite simple, but unfortunately it's just kind of a losing game. That hit me as well, you know, not because it wasn't expected, but because it's just, it's still there, right? And we, for whatever reason, uh, collectively, we're not, you know, doing as good a job as we should in incentivizing, you know, others or in doing our own work to move away from passwords. I just wanted to key off of um, what you're saying about the, the different industries. I, I really liked, one of the things I really like to see in the report, not that I like to see the attacks, but um, there was a sort of an industry by industry analysis in the IoT section that, you know, kind of went through, you know, because a lot of a lot of good research went in there from Section 52 from the CyberX acquisition from about a year ago and some of the other um, IoT and OT research we've done. You know, it was just really nice to see sort of the way that the attacks were playing out against different industries. So you could start to think about, you know, what I should worry about, you know, depending on the industry you're in. Yeah, sure thing. I mean, we're talking about, uh, you know, some industries that are, you know, literally using operational technology, uh, you know, from, uh, you know, little apps or solutions from companies that may no longer even be in business. And, uh, and of course, the stakes are much higher in some of those, you know, um, healthcare and oil and gas and such and such. Yeah, my, my new rule of thumb when I think about the OT space is that the equipment might be 50 to 100 years old, and there's literally some stuff still running on steam. Um, and then <laughs> right. the electronics were modernized anywhere between, say, 30 and 50 years ago, you know, with quote-unquote modern electronics of the time, which are, of course, nowhere near usable today. They barely support IP, let alone, you know, modern authentication protocols are yeah. completely out of, the, out, out of the realm of possibility. I know it wasn't covered directly in the paper and report, you know, but uh, just, just this morning I was uh, doing a briefing, virtual of course, uh, with a critical, critical infra company back east. We were talking about a couple, some of the findings here and, you know, I mentioned, um, you know, Azure Sphere as an example of where we can help, in a sense, democratize, uh, lower the, you know, lower the cost of entry for, you know, creating what could be, you know, a very promising net new ecosystem, of, you know, of devices. No question it's going to take, you know, innovation. It's going to take, in some cases, you know, just fundamental rebuild. But if, you know, the more we can put data like this out there, the more we can just make people aware that there are some really basic need-to-dos, you know, this will help us 
help us uh, secure the ecosystem. I'm a huge fan of Azure Sphere. I mean, you'd be amazed how many threat models I've built with customers where they've had these IoT devices. And it's like, okay, so how do you authenticate the IoT device? Well, we use TLS. I'm like, okay, so where are the keys stored? Well, it's stored like in some configuration file on this micro OS. I'm like, well, what are the protections <laughs> on those, you know, on those on those files? And it's like nothing. But then when you look at something like, you know, Azure Sphere, that idea of protecting sensitive data is just part of the product. Um, I've done quite a bit of development actually with um, with the Azure Sphere. There's an Azure, Azure Sphere SDK for those of you not aware. Um, and if you are, you know, either a intellectual intellectually curious or uh, you actually have a need for it, uh, play around with it. Kick the tires. Just load up Visual Studio Code, load up the Azure Sphere SDK, and get a device. Um, you know, it's cheap and uh, an experiment. It's uh, it's actually a breath of fresh air. There's so many great security services that come with with uh, Azure Sphere. It's good to see. Yeah, I mean, the, they actually did include in, in this report the seven properties of highly secured devices, which is basically what we figured out. Okay, let's let's take an analysis of what we learned on, you know, Xbox and Surface and all the different hardware that we've done, and you know, how do you actually keep, you know, a device that's going to be out there in the wild in the world secure? And then, you know, instead of just doing principles, they actually took it to properties. You know, something you can measure, you can ask a question, answer a question of, you know, does it do all these things? And if so, great. You know, that's that's a secure device. You know, things like error reporting, small uh, trusted computing base, defense in depth, hardware root of trust, etc. Um, and so, I'm a huge fan of Azure Sphere. The the one thing that I did learn is it's something that um, because of the whole SDK element of it, it's something that's you do actually have to sort of write an app for it for the particular device. Which, if you're producing a device, makes all the sense in the world because you have to anyway. But the um, the the thing that was interesting was like the the first case study on that was actually uh, Starbucks. Um, it's a public case study that's that's uh, on the Microsoft site. We can add a link to the show notes. Because they had standardized on a single device, they were actually able to put this secure Azure Sphere device, I think they called it a Guardian module, in front of um, all of those different pieces of equipment and write one app that worked you know, however many thousand times at Starbucks has machines and provided that secure sort of instrumentation that you know secure, but it also you know gave them important business benefits, which is I think how they probably justified the project. And that hey, you know they they knew you know because they have these you know sort of um, you know younger uh, employees there that are uh, operating these, these machines that may not have been fully trained or may not know fully like okay this is when this happens it's probably that the, the little dispenser for grinds in the back is full, and so they had to you know ended up setting up trucks for false alarms all the time that was costly and so the business ended up saving money by having this you know kind of modern day uh, instrumentation on these machines but they had to have it secure because that's how Starbucks rolls um, and so it was really a, it was sort of an interesting case study there I applaud any company that focuses on you know making it easier and more secure for me to get coffee <laughs> so it's you know I, it's interesting because uh, I can it's funny how conversations are framed by before and after the pandemic. But uh, right before the pandemic, I remember meeting in our briefing center with uh, the CISO team of a large European power generator. I'm forgetting quite the a company making power equipment, and they were looking at Sphere, and because in their mind uh, it was um, they were determined to essentially recommend that they essentially sell off part of their power power generation capability just to a local to a very like a provincial authority and just kind of let them use whatever power system they were using as long as they needed to they didn't see the benefit in trying to go back to these into these large systems they wanted to start over essentially they wanted to create net new you know from the ground up you know chip up um, clean energy 
you know, with, uh, you know, essentially wired or I guess wireless from the beginning. And so it's kind of, you know, it's cool opportunities, whether it's, you know, again, the, the, the technology is there for you. It's a matter of what business decisions that you want to make coming out of how you use it. Um, just quickly, uh, the, you know, the, the what's in it for me, you know, the, on this uh, report, the very last substantive slide, I guess, infographic is, uh, I, I don't know who did this, uh, designed this slide. It's the first time I've seen it, uh, at least within Microsoft. And it's the, uh, it's a bell curve, a cybersecurity bell curve. And I really found this visually impact, impactful. And essentially it's a bell curve and it just says that, says that basic security hygiene still protects against 98% of attacks. So use anti-malware, apply least privilege, enable multi-factor authentication, keep your software up to date, and protect your data. And so it was good to see there's so much innovation out there, so much interesting work going on, important work being uh, you know being done. But in the end, uh, even after this report that summarizes all of our you know what we see in our data over the years, we close with a slide that is sort of so elemental and so timeless in a way that. You know, it's it's a responsible <laughs> message, and it's still very relevant. One of the interesting things, um, actually, kind of switching to the earlier part of the report, the, the ransomware piece. Um, actually, was uh, I did some of the review work on that before it went out, and there was some really interesting stuff because, you know, it's really kind of even though that the vulnerabilities are, are remaining constant, the um, the monetization has really transformed in the past couple of years, and there's some really good analysis there. You know, some some of the things that kind of caught my eye around, you know, essentially the, the the amount of money people are paying for ransoms are giving these ransomware gangs budgets that are probably rivaling, you know, nation states. And it's one of the reasons we really don't want people to pay, um, because it's kind of a tragedy of the commons uh, type of thing where, you know, maybe individually it's your, your best interest to do it, but, you know, that's going to boomerang back on you and everybody else. And there's also some uh, some data there on, like, how much stuff costs on the dark markets, including ransomware kits. Because like one of the things a lot of people don't realize is that the ransomware thing is not just a single dude doing this um, or lady. There might be you know lady ransomware attackers too. Um, ultimately, it's it's an ecosystem in many ways, and like the most at its most basic, there's the kit providers you know that either sell you know access to the kit or you know take a cut and sort of help and assist in sort of a ransomware as a service model, and then there's the operators. These kits often have multiple tools. They they have different attack techniques. They have different pieces of malware they'll install. And then the operators don't necessarily stick with just one kit provider. They might try two or three different kits. And you know, then the, the kit providers offer new compelling features. And and so sometimes they use multiple different kits, even though it's the same actor um, or same operator that's operating the malware. And so it was really an interesting sort of view into the complexity of that ecosystem and that you're really facing like a, an underground or a dark economy um, more so than you are the, the, the skills and limitations of, of one particular person or small group. It's almost uh, commodified. Yeah, completely. In fact, I would suspect that if anything, the price, the um, prices that attackers will pay. So for example, um, you can, uh, you know, procure or rent a list of stolen password, uh, username, password pairs for under a dollar per a thousand, right? Even one estimate here, I'm looking at this, says $150, for 400 million. And so I suspect that as more and more, you know, this information is harvested, the price probably goes down because they have a supply, a supply and demand dynamic as well in the ecosystem. So I'm going to ask something a little bit, um, well, in the report, but a little bit different about 
we've been talking about disinformation and uh, disinformation and misinformation and spreading doubt. So it's slightly less technical, but I think it's a really important thing because it is, it does also affect security. What's your take on that, Mark, and what we should be doing or what organizations should be doing? Because, you know, it can affect an organization, not just a person. Or- First of all, just full disclosure, interest of transparency. I actually recently just recently joined an advisory board of a startup that's working on this issue. So I want to be very clear that I'm speaking on behalf of Microsoft, (laughs) what I think is best for us and our customers. But I joined that uh, other company's board because this issue, I wasn't even paying attention to this this, this issue, Sarah. I never thought about it until the last couple of years. I was always generally aware it was going on, but I haven't been on Facebook in several years. You know, so LinkedIn is really my only, uh, you know, social networking tool or app. And so um, the more I reading about this it's it's terrifying and it's it's indicative of, this, of the the larger of some of the findings in this report that number one is clearly uh nation state driven i'm not going to pick on any particular governments or government sponsored actors but it's clearly done for nation state purposes to sow discord and tear you know literally tear populations apart in countries but it's also becoming a for-profit economy or for-profit segment, I guess, in the underground economy. And that's what's very troubling to me because once these attackers uh, can, you know, are, uh, once they see motive, financial motive, whatever, it's really hard to stop because it's uh, the motive is there, the, the tools are there, the uh, uh, AI is there now uh, for attackers to use. And so, like any other criminal issue, it's going to come down to um, we're, we're not going to stamp it out. I think it'd be really hard to stamp it out. In this case, you know, political, let's say political uh, election security, things like that, it's going to really be required to really, really help election officials and, you know, and related personnel understand what they're up against, you know, and, and this can be a really um, a tough one because of just differences in budgets and differences in um, perception of how people view, you know, threats and such. And so I know that, for example, our team does quite a bit of work, you know, within Microsoft of, um, our, our legal team, you know, training people that run voting infrastructure. And this is, that's really important work. So it's going to take a lot of that type of work. But again, it's sort of a, an asymmetric, uh, you know, arms race here because the attackers can just keep doing this. And especially as they reach into the citizenry, people who aren't really not incentivized to care about something's accurate, if it makes them feel good, they're going to click on it. It's a very, very tough issue. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's one of the ones that, that worries me a lot because, We've had such essentially trustworthy news sources in a lot of countries around the world. You know, they might be biased here or there, but they weren't, you know, deliberately trying to misinform in, in a lot of in a lot of countries. And so when you have, you know, this sort of switch to sources of social media, which are much more, I don't know, I kind of jokingly call it gossip, you know, because it, it, it fits that more. It's just whatever someone says as opposed to, you know, like a vetted and validated kind of uh, statements, et cetera as many of our societies today just don't have the muscle to doubt automatically like we used to. Um, and so we, we tend to trust what we see. Um, so it's, yeah, it's definitely something that bothers and concerns me as well. One thing that really stood out for me was there was an infographic in there, or there is an infographic in there about email attacks or email-borne attacks. I think most people think about phishing and that's about it. But this infographic actually goes through all different kinds of 
email-born malicious attacks, which uh, which I, I learned a lot just from that, you know, just from that alone. But is there any kinds of attacks? I know, I know Mark is always going on about ransomware and discussing ransomware, especially human-operated <laughs> ransomware. But I mean, are we seeing other kind? Yeah, I know. I don't mean to sound, made it sound that way, but the the point is, we're seeing you know we're seeing big increases in certain classes of attack, um, and what's sort of driving that? Most threat actors don't need to be good, you know, they they can be pretty good uh, because they can always rely on you know they'll always find uh, you know a weaker link somewhere in a supply chain. The ones that can be very good, the ones that have the you know let's say national security imperative or should say national interests imperative. Um, they have the patience to do so, and you know, they can they can uh, take months or even years, I suppose. You know, those are the ones that, at a macro, I guess, really concern me. Like, if you look at Nobelium, that was really interesting. It was a real shot across the bow in terms of what it revealed about the patience and the, the stealthiness of an attacker. I'd be interested in Mark's take on this, given the ransomware angle. But I think... Um, you know, you have Nobelium on the one side. Again, that's a, uh, just for clarification, that's Microsoft's term for essentially, you know, what was uh, also known as the SolarGate, SolarWinds uh, attackers going back, I guess, about 10, 10 and a half months or so now. By the way, Microsoft uses the table of elements because it can't be a trademarked. So it's uh, just a way for us to refer to attackers. Those concern me because they have outsized impact. They make policymakers, they make our companies certainly think in a different way about all the various things that we have to do sort of in conjunction or in parallel to take on the attackers. And these, you know, these, I mean, these are real societal issues. For most of us, for most people, most organizations, companies, what have you, you know, it's the, it's the more commodity type uh, ransomware, uh, you know, pretty good threat actors. They're, they just want money. Some of them claim to have a, a code of ethics. We shall see. There are, I guess, because honor among thieves. It wasn't really covered in the in the report, but my, you know, my concern, like I'd really hate for us to be having this discussion next year, and we're having to talk about an, a trend, an increase in killerware, right? In in attackers that just say we don't care. We're just we're taking this pipeline down. We're taking this hospital hospital offline. Consequences be darned. You know, that's that that's what really scares me. Uh, that we'll just start getting people who are so nihilistic or so um, dedicated to a certain cause that can't sway them. Yeah, that's that's one that also worries me. You know, as as we get into sort of more and more critical infrastructure targets, um, or as we see them getting into those, which you know, which you know has increased re- uh, recently for sure. Uh, that's definitely something that I I watch and worry about as well. Yeah, and one of the, one of the things just on the to kind of wrap up on the ransomware tar, uh, topic is um, there is a link there to our ransomware guidance. It's just the aka.ms/ransomware, um, and it does uh, actually highlight the the order um, that we recommend organizations focus on mitigation, and it is in many ways opposite of what most people expect because everyone was like, oh yeah, let's just block, block first and then I can forget about the rest. That's that's all I need is the front of the roadmap. We actually did it in a different order on purpose because of how hard it is to prevent them from getting in. And the last thing we want to do is set up a front line that you know is only the front line and then if they get one way through, then, well, sorry, we don't have a plan and the whole thing goes you know in a handbasket to somewhere. Um, so the... Uh, so the, the way that we actually ordered that was deliberately to focus on making sure your backups and your ability to restore them 
um, are your top priority um, because you don't want to have to pay them to recover in the worst case scenario. Now, we don't want you to not do other things and not try to prevent, not try to detect, not keep them out of the admins group and getting control of them, et cetera. Um, but we want to make sure that like one of the first things you check is to make sure you don't have to pay them and use their usually terrible and, and ugly tool to actually recover. Um, so that's that's one of the top priorities that we do recommend there um, in that ransomware space. Hey, do, do we ever have people like paying the ransom and the attacker saying, ha, 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 just kidding? It happens from what I understand, but... I don't think it happens a lot. Now, the ransomware gangs, when it's expedient for them, do go offline. Uh, sometimes they share the key, sometimes they don't. I mean, there is no guarantee, right? Because, I mean, these are, you know, they pretend to have morals and ethics and try to impose them on you to, to force you to pay. But um, really, you're, you're trusting the word of a criminal that's anonymous. And we actually have some chats um, included in the report that actually talk about the dialogue where you can kind of see how rough and hard nosed they get in the negotiations. It's, it's, um, it's not pleasant because they have access to your financial records and whatnot. And so they know what's in your accounts because they're getting them from the systems that you use to manage those accounts. Yeah, what I have to imagine, we think about, it, I guess, incentives. This is sort of pure capitalism. They're just trying to make money, you know, lower risk and costs and maximize gain. And so, obviously, not to be sympathetic there, but the, their business model wouldn't, you know, wouldn't be so attractive or appealing if they took the payment and, you know, didn't didn't pay back. Uh, the next victim's going to know better. <laughs> yeah, I had a quick couple of highlights, if you don't mind. And the one that was uh, a couple things, a couple other things caught my eye. Like there was a really interesting one on sort of the browser search results manipulation, um, which I had never personally experienced. But it was a nice little screenshot that showed like a before and after of of how they kind of monetize, uh, you know, attacks that way. Um, I really, really like the adversarial machine learning, which is like how are the attackers going to you know, go after your defensive machine learning and the different types of attacks and what they look like and, and how they work. Um, I thought it was kind of uh, interesting there. And then just the nation state section, like there's definitely insights on a per nation state basis. But one of the, the interesting points that I, I, that I picked up was that they, you know, I mean, they, sometimes they do. I mean, they tend to be the ones that do new techniques, right, like supply chain attacks and whatnot. But generally, they tend to also use a lot of the same attack techniques that, that the uh, commodity attackers of different flavors, ransomware and whatnot, um, also do. But the point that, that was made in the part that I really liked is that they are actually resourced and sophisticated enough to actually figure out which one would work best in this circumstance. So they're not you know, trying to do a phishing email when it would be a lot easier to, 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 to take another technique or vice versa. And so I thought that was a really interesting observation on what kind of sets nation states apart. But Mark, I'd, I'd love to, to hear your perspective. For me, it's a little more personal uh, because, you know, my previous life before coming to Microsoft, I spent some time as a North Korea analyst. So anytime uh, uh, my eyes just always gravitate to the, if I see something about North Korea. So in this case, you know, it's interesting. This report does have a few um, tidbits, a couple of slides or infographics on North Korea uh, as one of the sort of five or six actors that we focused on. To me, it's the most interesting because... It embodies so much uh, what's at stake here. They have their neighborhood, dangerous neighborhood, and uh, so they're using you know they're using offensive cyber or cyber crime to let's say project uh, strength, uh, you know of course in absence of um, national strength, and of course because they're largely cut off from the global economy, they're 
conducting cyber cyber activities simply to make money. There's a you know there's a national security and a, a national economic imperatives that come together. Probably the most like the crisp, the most uh, the cleanest way or the crispest way you could imagine. It's it's very visceral there in North Korea. Now this this, this report, for example, also highlighted Vietnam and Turkey and. Uh, I'm forgetting if it's this one or last year's, but they even had, a, I think, a reference to South Korea. This is where it gets more and more interesting because now you're seeing, I'm not going to say second tier, that's not fair, but you're seeing governments or government-affiliated groups or actors clearly operating with some level of government protection. It, it's, it's fanning out, right? Activity isn't just the usual suspects, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea. Now you're seeing, you know, sort of secondary actors. That's troubling because uh, there's no reason to believe that next year when we're covering the report, we're not going to see, you know, two or three more examples, uh, newer, you know, newer criminal groups from other parts of the world getting into this for a variety of reasons. So that makes it very dangerous because, um, you know, as Microsoft's president Brad Smith uh, still says, and Tom Bird, who runs our customer trust, you know, there really aren't any guardrails right now. There aren't any real agreed-on norms, and that's 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 very tough especially for those of us, you know, trying to play, uh, you know, defense. Uh, it's very hard to act against actors that don't have guardrails. Yeah, essentially there's no equivalent of a Geneva Convention that says this is out of boundaries always kind of thing. Again, my concern about the term you're hearing now about killerware, where you might just get any number of groups, disaffected, you know, people, criminal groups, whoever, nation states, that might just say, we're just going to take this thing offline and that's it. So getting back to Mark's point earlier about, you know, ransomware and and we have to do a much better job, all of us working together to help make sure that our partners and customers understand how to do backups and, you know, and how to protect and modernize their infrastructure. So I have a question that maybe may be a little contentious. Um, and I'm re- I realize I'm putting you on the spot. Actually, probably both of you on the spot. What role do we see here for digital currencies being used to pay ransoms and so on? I mean, is this... Are we seeing a spike in ransomware and appropriate you know, criminal activity because of digital currencies, which are to, to some degree anonymous than uh, you know wiring someone someone some money to a bank account? Yeah, I mean, I'd love to hear what Marcus uh, thinking, but um, from my perspective, it's absolutely an enabler. Now, if we if those disappeared tomorrow, would this model continue? Very potentially so. You know, they're they're bold enough and brazen enough that they might deal with a wire transfer and find some other way to kind of like figure that out. But it's definitely the ease of use of that is definitely an enabler for these models for sure. Yeah, I like to believe that investigators, regulators, law enforcement, what have you, Interpol, perhaps other groups that you know they're also. I suppose you know. I guess ironically, they may see opportunities to use technology in this case to chase technology. You know, there might be a way you're establishing essentially a, you know, what's called a paper trail. There's probably some level of you know, visibility into, into tracking some of these transactions. So I'm not by any means an expert on uh, digital currencies. Uh, I still have dollar bills in my wallet. <laughs> so, um, you know, but I have heard some, in, some interesting briefings recently from, um, you know, international police agencies talking about this. And, you know, they're, they're certainly, I think, learning as they go, but. Again, technology is uh, is agnostic, right? It's how people, for good and bad, enable it and use it. All right. Well, let's uh, let's start to bring this thing to a close. So, one thing we ask uh, all our guests, Mark, is if you had one final thought to leave our listeners with, uh, what would it be? 
this isn't so hard for me because I've been doing this. I've said this recently in a couple other um, panel, you know, online panels and such. But you know, despite the threat environment, despite the the innovation uh, and the attacker ecosystem and all the advanced attacks and such, despite what's in the news, um, the much of what you can do, you know, is is there at your I won't say fingertips, but it's right there for you. It's this I call I said earlier, it's this cybersecurity bell curve. You know, if we can still help you take a fresh look at practices you're probably already utilizing, uh, modernize them in a way, you know, uh, we think actually confident that this can make a measurable uh, improvement in your cybersecurity posture. So if nothing else, please, please uh, pay attention to, you know, to the hygiene. Yeah, I know Mark has uh, mentioned the hygiene um, at length as well in the past, so it's good to see someone else sort of concurring there. Well, look, hey, Mark, thank you so much for joining us this week. Uh, I know we all really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're really busy. And yeah, this is a, like every episode, I've, I've learned something. And uh, this is an area I don't normally spend a lot of time on. So I probably learned uh, significantly more here than I would do on, on other podcast recordings. Uh, and to all you listening out there, thank you so much for tuning in this week. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Azure Security Podcast. You can find show notes and other resources at our website, azsecuritypodcast.net. If you have any questions, please find us on Twitter at Azure SecPod. Background music is from ccmixter.com and licensed under the Creative Commons license.